BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today on The Argument, do diversity programs at work actually work? Jane Coaston. And if you've listened to our past two episodes, you know we've been deep in debate over this moment of possible change in the way we think about work. You know, work. That place where too many of us spend too much of our lives. I'm doing it right now. This week, I wanted to tackle a part of modern work life that no one really wants to talk about, but everyone has to. Because, well, it's probably mandatory. DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And I'm the one with the anti-argument this time. Making the world and the workplace less racist, homophobic, and transphobic would be a good thing. But in my experience, DEI doesn't do that. A yearly implicit bias training, the effectiveness of which is very much a point of disagreement, is unlikely to change the hearts and minds of the American worker. But it will satisfy the need of companies and corporations to perform anti-racism. To me, it doesn't deal with the real problems at hand, but it does let companies say they did a training, so discrimination solved. Just don't listen to employees from marginalized backgrounds saying otherwise. I told you, I'm coming in with the anti-argument. Arguing against me are two experts who have focused their work around what really brings results in workplace diversity training. Dr. Sonia Kang is the Canada Research Chair in Identity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Toronto and hosts the podcast For the Love of Work. And Lily Zhang is a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy consultant and public speaker. I let them know where I stood right out of the gate. I'm going to start out by saying that I have become a negative Nancy about DEI. When I hear the acronym DEI, I think about mandatory workplace training modules or videos that I have to watch and say that I watched and then... I stopped getting emails to ask me to watch it. But Lily, generally, what are workplace diversity initiatives? I would say it varies quite a bit depending on what company you're looking at, what industry you're in. And also, if I'm being very frank, what decade those interventions were created in. The stereotype of DEI initiatives that you're thinking of in terms of the mandatory trainings and the workshops and unconscious bias stuff, that was pretty common, especially in the early 2000s. But the range of diversity initiatives, especially today, is quite a bit larger and wider than that initial subset of, let's call them mandatory trainings. And so you might also see things like bystander intervention trainings to know what to do when you see microaggressions. You might see specific leadership training and coaching to be able to be a good people manager, working with diverse teams, working within diverse companies. You might see engagement sorts of programs and initiatives that try to rally folks around things like community service or helping underserved populations or doing something related to corporate mission. All of these things, I think, are part of the constellation of DEI initiatives. 
Sonia, do you agree with what Lily said? Yeah, I think I agree for the most part. I would say, though, that those unconscious bias or implicit bias trainings are still pretty common. Like that's usually a starting ground where companies who are like trying to get on the bandwagon, like they start there, right? Because it's easy to implement. They can just throw it online. Like you said, they can send the reminder emails. It's kind of like set it and forget it. And I feel like for the most part, they do just forget it. I feel as if that's telling. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) How did this become a part of the modern workplace, Lily? I feel like When my dad started at the Public Library of Cincinnati in Hamilton County in the 1980s, he didn't have workplace trainings. It might have actually been great if he would have had workplace trainings as a Black librarian married to a white woman. That might have been very helpful for his colleagues, but he didn't have that. So I have these trainings now. And as you mentioned, a lot of industries and workplaces do these in as you mentioned, myriad forms. When did this become a thing? Uh, How much history do you want? Because I do (laughs) entire workshops on the history of DEI training and don't want to take up too much space here. But I can give a ClickDose version if you want. Lily, if we could go on for two hours just on the history of this, I would love that. But regrettably, I have been- I'll do a short version. Super short version. thank you. Thank you. Okay, Okay, great. So uh, 1960s, civil rights movement. This is when we first started seeing diversity initiatives become relevant. Before that, we actually had things called encounter groups where uh, corporations would mostly put a bunch of people of color with a bunch of white people in a room and say, have at it. Uh, And it was very traumatic and stressful and didn't necessarily fix things. The U.S. military actually did quite a few of these, these interventions. After the Civil Rights Act there was a new push to ensure that companies didn't get sued. So this was mostly a drive to avoid uh, racial discrimination lawsuits. And so you started seeing a spate of uh, racial sensitivity trainings, they were called. Essentially, a trainer would come in and say, hey, these are all the slurs that you're using that you shouldn't be using. These are all the ways that you are managing people that are racist, that you shouldn't be doing them. Don't do them. Middling success, there was actually quite a big backlash in the 70s where white people specifically resented being told what to do and what to not do. And so there was always the dual pressure of, for legal reasons, we need to implement these trainings. And then no one actually likes these trainings because no one likes being told what to do. From the 80s, we started seeing the development of business case arguments. And so then it became, well, if you have more diversity, then you make more money. It's a very one-to-one sort of thing. And so we're going to focus on mainly diversity hiring. And so there was a big focus on hiring that actually persists to this day, saying, well, if you just hire more people, whether through affirmative action or something else, then you get more money. What is the goal of these programs? Is this supposed to teach people to be essentially polite? Is it supposed to be like, don't say these things, don't do these things so that people can get things done? Are these programs intending to teach anti-racism to adults, in your view? Yeah, there's a couple of different things. So there's diversity-related goals, and then there's inclusion-related goals. And diversity, we're talking about kind of like numerical representation types of goals. So that's what we're talking about hiring, right? So just getting like a diverse group of people through the door. Hopefully that represents the area that you're in or the group that you're serving. And then there's more inclusion-side goals. And inclusion-side goals are making sure that it's a positive workplace culture. People feel like they have a voice. They feel like they have power. They feel like they have access to opportunities. 
typically the focus has been on the diversity side. Now we're seeing more of a focus on the inclusion side. But even still, I would say that the goal seems to be at the individual level, right? The goal of fixing like the sexist and the racist, right? So like trying to teach people like what to do by controlling their attitudes or their behaviors or like teaching them how to control those things. And then on the other side of that, there's efforts to fix the women or fix the minorities, teaching women to negotiate better, speak up more in the boardroom, ask for more promotions and raises. So A lot of that focus has been at that individual level where I think the goal should be if you want to change the workplace, you have to actually change like the structure of the workplace. Right. But it seems to be that like if you need to make structural change, getting the people who run these companies to say we need to do that, I feel like that's not going to work. They're going to be like, or let's just do another implicit bias training. Like it seems very much like there's an easy way and a hard way. And if you're any corporation, you're going to choose the easy way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is easy, right? But then there's rarely, you know, follow-up or a linking of what you're learning in those modules to, like, your day-to-day experience in the workplace. And so that's where it kind of gets lost. And that's why it's so easy is because you can just literally send these things out or have the training and then just kind of, you know, like, let it simmer and see what happens. I also have been saying similar things until pretty recently. I've actually been kind of a negative Nelly too around DEI. I've been pretty cynical about this work, despite doing it full-time as my career, because you're right, Jane, in the sense that many organizations have always been able to take the easy road out, have always been able to just assuage people's anxieties with another unconscious bias training, which then lets them ride things out until the next wave of people being pissed off, and then they do another unconscious bias training. I don't think that's actually the case right now for many companies in a very new and exciting way. And the reason for that is specifically 2020 and everything that happened around the murder of George Floyd and the rise of, call it, social accountability, where you're seeing more instances of employees doing things like breaking their NDAs, going on the record and saying, actually, my company is racist, really racist, and creating large amounts of public attention that companies actually have not been able to silence through one-off unconscious bias trainings. In fact, we're actually seeing companies try that old playbook and say, okay, okay, we get it, we're going to do a training. And those same employees go, actually, you're still racist. And so the old corporate playbook of let's just do performative diversity and and try to shut people up, is actually failing. And we're seeing scandal after scandal after scandal uh, from places like the big tech giants to the healthcare field to finance to pretty much everywhere. You know, PR departments are uh, really stressed out right now because something that worked just 10 years ago is no longer working. And social media is just a buzz with employee is going like, this is a bad place to work. And until they make these structural changes, I will continue to say it's a bad place to work and dissuade every non-white candidate, every non-male candidate from joining your company. That's actually having real power. Right. There's a class element here that I want to get into. For instance, I work in media. I've had a lot of anti-bias trainings, but I recognize that my experiences of biases are not like the experiences of folks working in the service economy in a host of other sectors where nobody's getting a training and there really is no recourse. So my concern, I think, here is that can this be 
a Band-Aid for white-collar businesses, while folks who are experiencing, I don't even want to say microaggressions, who are just experiencing straight-up aggression aggressions, are left out in the cold. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on whether that's something that's happening, whether that's something that can be addressed through these same tools. Yes, I agree. I think a lot of trainings that are focused on white-collar professionals are not trickling down, not getting directed to blue-collar professionals, service workers, folks working in the retail industry, low-income workers, etc. The cynical argument is DEI is just to pacify white-collar workers and to help them have better workplaces so that the most privileged of marginalized groups can succeed to prevent the formation of class consciousness in America. On my off days, I I ascribe to that because, you know, things suck sometimes. And sometimes you look at the world and go like, wow, this flaming dumpster fire can't get any better. Now, when I'm feeling better, there are many initiatives and industries that are directing DEI to their lower income workers, to their service workers, but they typically take different forms. This is what I like to call the dual movements of DEI to both raise the floor and push the ceiling. And you need both happening at the same time. And so improvements happening in white-collar spaces are to push the ceiling to ensure that the maximum positive experience that, for example, a person of color in the workplace can be better. Efforts to raise the floor are to ensure that the minimum possible experience that the worker in the worst of situations faces is better. And so those initiatives might include things like passing more laws at the local level, might include things like holding your customers and shoppers and your stores to higher standards, to responding swiftly to incidents of violence or discrimination, to upping minimum wage. These are all part of the overall constellation of DEI work. What we see as diversity initiatives are typically put into place in like what you're thinking of is, you know, white dominated corporate workplaces. Hopefully we've seen a little bit of movement away from, you know, the legal case and even the business case for diversity. I think a lot of people are still rooted there, right? That's where their motivation is coming from. Either they don't want to get sued or they think this is going to make them look good, right? It's going to make them look good to consumers. It's going to make them look good to investors, like all of these different motivations that aren't really rooted in thinking like this is the right thing to do. And so that space is really well suited to those kinds of performative initiatives where in the kinds of jobs that you're talking about, there isn't really a performance because typically these tend to be even invisible jobs. At certain levels of the initiatives, we don't even think about people who are in those jobs. And so the access to those kinds of initiatives is really limited. I was doing a project with a local company that wanted to track the diversity in their workforce. So they just wanted to design like a diversity survey for their employees. And one of the biggest issues with it was that there's a sizable part of the workforce that doesn't have access to email. They don't have a work email because they're just out there in the field doing stuff. And so essentially they just didn't get measured, right? Because the paper surveys were sent out, but then it's up to the supervisor, the manager to actually buy into this and hand them out. And then they have to give them time to do it or they have to collect it. And it's just not a priority. At a certain point, you're kind of dealing with, in the workplace, kind of a hierarchy of needs. When I am pretty satisfied in my pay and pretty satisfied in the work that I am doing day to day, that's when I can think more about like, 
I'd really like to have more conversations about this issue. I'd really like to have these different experiences. But if I'm not even getting to that point, like if you ask the people who are in charge of cleaning offices what the worst aspects of their jobs are, I wonder if they would say like, aggressions that we receive that are probably pretty horrifying or the fact that they don't get health care or they don't get paid enough. And I'm just thinking about how do you see all of this interweaving? Okay. So I am going to push back a little bit. At this point, I am hearing that doing DEI work that mostly benefits, let's say, white collar POC or women professionals is in some way not good or unethical because it doesn't benefit low-income folks. And I think that's a spurious argument. I think that's a fallacious argument, in fact, because these things are completely separate. Yes, we absolutely need to ensure that our DEI work, or call it something else, call it justice work, call it accountability, call it equity, whatever, benefits the folks at the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder in the U.S., Absolutely essential, totally correct. That's a completely different problem than how can we ensure that white-collar professionals of color are thriving in the workplace? Because I work with white-collar professionals all the time, and like I'm seeing genuine trauma. I am seeing huge amounts of burnout. I am seeing folks' mental health go to really dizzyingly low levels. Like It's not sunshine and rainbows, right? And I can recognize that those are different challenges, perhaps somewhat informed by their privilege as at least middle-class professionals, and that folks in lower-income brackets are having harder problems. But just because there are problems that are worse than yours doesn't mean that your problems are not real. Why is this a zero-sum game? Like, why are we adopting the scarcity mindset? Right. We can have our cake and eat it too. We can do both of these things. And I, I don't want to be so cynical to say that because we're doing one, it means we don't care about the other. I agree with that. I just don't really see as much movement on the other side, right? On the side of making things better for workers who are in those kinds of positions or even like one of the biggest things that's happened during the pandemic is how many women have left the workplace and not returned. And one of the things, you know, we talk about a lot in Canada is having universal basic income. Like we've been talking about this forever. And I think that is something that could really help in situations like that where you're out of work. It might shift a lot of people's priorities about work and orientation towards work. But that stuff kind of gets lost, right? Same with the push for, you know, affordable daycare, affordable childcare. And I think it is, it's a money issue, right? It's not to say that DEI training is bad. Like, I'm all for it I, in theory, right? Like, I also do it, um, as Lily was saying. But I just think that, like, one is very well-funded and talked about and visible, and the other is not. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm coming into this with a bias, and I really appreciate you calling me out on that because I think it is clearly not a zero-sum game. I just think that with my own experiences, I have witnessed the one-sum, the one-sum of that game. Hi, Jane. I'm Ruby. I'm from California, and I just love your show. I've been arguing with my mom about getting vaccinated. She is an anti-vaxxer and did vote for Trump. And so I just wanted to know what's your opinion on this and how to deal with this and also how to get through to my mom. Ruby, with the question of the coronavirus era, how do you get a vaccine-hesitant person who is physically able to get vaccinated to vaccinate? Honestly, 
I don't know. I've done a lot on how conspiracy theories work and how fact-checking can backfire, but this is a moment in which we really need people to get vaccinated, not just for themselves, but for other people. Also, this becomes a moment where a lot of past mistakes in the world of public health are coming home to roost. You see that in the numbers of Black and Hispanic folks who are resisting vaccination for understandable reasons, perhaps having some concerns with public health efforts and the healthcare system writ large. So do you have any advice for Ruby? Have you successfully convinced a hesitant person in your life to get the COVID vaccine? Tell us what worked for you in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. And we might play an excerpt of it in a future episode. Thank you and good luck, Ruby. I know this is hard. Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. I've spent most of my life in predominantly white spaces, and I think that my own experience of diversity trainings has been having my own identity wielded at other people as examples that this school or workplace or experience is diverse. I went to a private Catholic high school. It was a lovely high school. And they put out diversity literature that featured me on one page like three times. (laughs) So that's where I'm coming from in this conversation, where I want to hear more. I want to believe. I want to hear more about what DEI can be and what it should be. And so, Lily, your work is to go into workplaces and tailor programs for unique office environments. What does it look like when it works? Absolutely. I want to also add one thing before I answer that specific question, which is I've seen all the problems we're talking about here, but the reason why I'm still in this industry and trying to push it better is because I don't believe that we win if we try to burn the whole thing down. I've considered it. (laughs) <laughs> and so the only other alternative is to be better. And so the way that I do my work is essentially recognizing all of the ways in which DEI has failed and working with individuals, to be very frank, Jane, that are pretty much in your camp, right? That are just like, I don't trust people like you. The last six people like you who came in made things worse for me. And so to answer your specific question, when I come into orgs, I start like many practitioners do by doing an assessment. And so the the reason why I collect this assessment is to understand not just what's happening, but also why it's happening. I think trying to get as much data as possible to infer causation is important because it's one thing to say, 
your engagement for, I don't know, Asian employees is really low. That's fine. That's somewhat useful. But it's more useful to say your engagement of your Asian employees is really low because your managers keep making racist jokes during meetings and that predominates the experiences of your employees. And so the reason why I do these assessments is to understand why the disparities are happening, where the levers are that I can push, where I can make the most difference with the least amount of labor possible on everyone's part so that we can do something that actually changes things. After that, we start problem solving. And so using that specific example with a client that I worked with a few months ago, their problem was that they scaled too fast and that their org was extremely decentralized. The large majority of managers didn't have training, didn't have development. And so the biases of these managers were getting directly passed on to their reports. And because the organization was largely Asian, that meant that the experiences of Asian folks in the org was really negative. And so what we did in that situation was we went to managers, we trained all the managers, we created a new system that ensured that those managers felt connected to the organizational culture. And then at the same time, we created support resources for these folks who are facing discrimination. We increased resources to the Asian Employee Resource Group to help them hold space for these folks that were struggling and having a hard time. We empowered an employee assistance program, an EAP, to provide more services for these employees. And we did all of these things in tandem. And then at the end of the day, we surveyed the org again. The experiences of Asian employees was better. Now, was I happy about how much better it got? No. Like, I wanted to fix the whole thing. It didn't fix the whole thing. We, like, you know, solved maybe 33% of the disparity. So we went back into it. We're still figuring it out. Right. Like like this isn't a great success story, but it's a story where I can say, look, I left that org slightly better. And that's the best that I can say. It's a hell of a lot better than me going in, delivering a training and going out saying, well, I hope people are feeling happy because that's not accountable. (laughs) Right. No, that's not accountability. I want to be clear here that I am only 22 percent on team burning it all down. That's not bad. What does your work look like when it goes right, Sonia? So we do a lot of work that I think is complementary to what Lily's talking about. What Lily just laid out would be an amazing, comprehensive kind of program, which I think is sounds really not like the things that I've seen. I'm trying. I'm trying to do better. In my work, I try to think more about structure and organizational design. For example, you know, looking at the kind of language that organizations are using in job advertisements or looking at the way that promotions are being framed and those opportunities are being presented to people. There's a company that we were working with. There was a position that they had And it was almost always like 98% of the time the applicants were male. And so they wanted to increase the gender diversity of people who are applying for that position. And so we took a look at the job advertisement and we changed a lot of the words to make it more gender neutral. And what we found is that people liked the job ad more. And even those who identified as men were applying at higher rates because it made it more inclusive for everyone. We really try to think about not necessarily just making the workplace better for, you know, this group or that group, but really making it better across the board so that we're thinking more about just like inclusion, psychological safety, creating this positive space structured in such a way that everyone can find, you know, a place for themselves there. 
The approach that Sonia is taking is one that I do myself, and it's focusing on the universal aspects of a better workplace, right? The idea that if you design a workplace with more psychological safety, it's objectively better for literally everyone in the workplace. And so by doing that, you can help marginalized communities and avoid threatening or making white folks or people in power feel defensive. It's a useful tactic. It's a good approach to this work, I would say. One of the challenges of doing long-term structural change work is it takes a specific kind of fuel to use, and that fuel is the trust of your marginalized employees. And this is something that we don't talk about much in this space, which is the longer an initiative drags on without showing tangible effects for marginalized populations, the lower their trust in the actors who are pursuing this sort of change initiative. And so I am then faced with the paradox of knowing that change takes a long time and knowing that that specific phrase, change takes a long time, has been weaponized to preserve the status quo against marginalized populations. So what am I supposed to do to deal with that? The imperfect approach that I've found so far is to specifically center these marginalized populations and to give them resources and support and short-term low-hanging fruit wins that better their standard of living that maybe are not structural in nature because doing so extends their ability to survive in an imperfect organization while structural change consultants like myself and Sonia help organizations get their act together. One of the challenging things about being in workplaces as a non-white, non-heterosexual person is that there is a sense of who are these diversity programs or who are these efforts for? Because I think there is an element of your work that is for me. And there is an element of your work that is for people who have to deal with me. I'm curious, Sonia, how do you balance the two? How do you provide for both me and the person who thinks I'm too sensitive? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that organizations haven't done a good job of is anticipating defensiveness of, like you said, the people who are dealing with you, right? So the people who are going to be defensive and say, you know, these people are just being too sensitive or think of it as a zero-sum game, like I'm going to lose my job here. They should be better at anticipating that because we've seen that again and again, those kinds of defensive reactions or, you know, the backlash that minority employees experience after these kinds of initiatives come into place. That needs to be much more explicitly talked about, anticipated, planned for when you're presenting your diversity initiative as this education awareness kind of program. How do you handle that defensiveness where the very people that you would want to reach with anti-racism trainings are the very people who will never want to admit that they are biased and who will get angrier and angrier when told that they may have a bias or that something that they're doing is wrong? Lily, how do you get past that defensiveness while also making it clear that that defensiveness isn't appropriate, that it isn't okay for you to think that you wanting to continue using slurs is more important than the person you're slurring. I feel like I would just wind up getting into fistfights and then we'd be in a different training. Okay, man, I have so many thoughts on this. I think the first thing I want to respond to is... Yes, we as DEI practitioners occupy a very tenuous space in the sense that we are seen as being accountable to the most marginalized employees, but need to work directly with the folks that are doing harm. I've seen DEI practitioners show up to the executive meeting and say, you're all white supremacist misogynists, and they get fired the next day. Are they right? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I think personally, you can't make a difference in the org if you've been fired right. after, you know, a three month process to select you. On the other hand, if you go in to that meeting and say, oh, you know, you're all such wonderful people who just have great intentions. Well, then you run the risk of being co-opted and not being accountable to the communities you care about. I take a restorative, transformative justice approach that says the reason why harm is happening is because needs are unmet. There's good research that shows that the single one biggest anxiety that white male leaders have with regards to DEI is not feeling like they have a future in the world that's being created. And so the way you address that is to specifically say there is a place for you in this company we are creating, but only for an inclusive, equitable version of you. We want you. You are important. Your skills are important. We need you to leverage what you know about the workplace in service of all of our employees. Another way to frame this, and I've written about this in the Harvard Business Review, is specifically white men have very little experience talking about masculinity and have very little experience talking about whiteness in ways that don't immediately put them on the defensive. And so in this respect, they are actually far behind folks who have had to live talking about race and gender and other aspects of difference every damn day. And so I help give them that space to talk about race and to talk about gender in a way that's safe, in a way that uh, has them ask, frankly, you know, really asinine questions to me because I'm their unicorn marginalized person that ticks way too many boxes <laughs> that isn't going to immediately cancel them for asking a bad question. Right. I get out all of their horrible, ignorant questions. I help them understand what their place is in this world that we're creating. I help them understand that toxic masculinity and white supremacy are bad. It's so elementary, right? But it's important. Especially because I think that workplaces are very often places where people who have one thing in common but nothing else in common are coming in together for the first time. I know that I've worked with people where I might be the first queer Christian they've ever worked with. They didn't think that was a thing, and they asked, they do that unicorn thing where they ask me incredibly stupid questions about, like, the book of Leviticus. And I'm like, eh, I don't really, I don't really, what? We, we work together. We don't But have they to- shouldn't be asking you those questions. They should be asking me those questions. Thank you, Lily. <laughs> because I don't, like, like they're not my boss, right? Like, right? like the reason why I exist is to be their sponge, punching bag, whatever you right. want to call it, for all their dumb questions. Right. So that when they make it into the room with you, they're not idiots about right. it. Right. Right? Like they've, <laughs> they've gotten out all their dumb questions. I am interested, Sonia, in how you bring these people into the conversation while also asking them to change something about themselves, something that they might be inherently defensive about. So I want to just start picking up on something that you said before about the workplace being one of the only opportunities that a lot of people have to interact with people who are not like them. Because I think the power of that cannot be underestimated in terms of what you're asking now, in terms of bringing those people into the conversation. For a lot of people, it's true, right? Like that exposure is so important. And that intergroup contact is like one of the prime ways that people break down these kinds of boundaries and build that motivation to be better, especially when you have initiatives that are voluntary. You know, you tend to get a lot of the people who are already there with you because 
a lot of times when people don't understand something or, you know, they have no familiarity with it, they just kind of write it off as being like, this is not for me. I'm not welcome in this conversation. I don't even want to deal with it. So you have to overcome that as a first step, just getting people to the table. There's always going to be some portion of the population that is unreachable. And that is not necessarily where I want to focus my efforts or channel resources from an organization into to deal with that type of person who's just like so obstinate, not willing to change, not willing to engage in this discussion. That's where the organizational design piece becomes even more important, because if you have someone who's not willing to change and they, let's say, are racist and they get into a position where they're in charge of hiring, you want to have the structure, the processes, the procedures set up in such a way that it doesn't matter. They can be racist, but the structure that you've built is so equitable that their bias can't play in there. And so I don't know that I would necessarily say that we need to reach those people who are so far gone, because I think that's kind of a waste of resources. I would rather see those resources put into, you know, building the structures that allow them to exist without messing things up for everyone else. I strongly agree with that. And I'm really excited that you say that because I feel like not too many practitioners do. That's usually where I disagree with people because I was looking to disagree with you and then you said the exact thing I was going to say and I was like, <laughs> holy shit, um, I like you. Um, but but I, I just want to con- concur entirely with that, right? Like we shouldn't design for the racists. We should work around the racists to neutralize the impact that their racism can cause. If you design an organization that's equitable enough and inclusive enough, I really do strongly believe that you can neutralize the impact of people who, I don't know, maybe are unsavory, maybe who just frankly aren't perfect. This overfocus of the industry on ensuring that we're perfect people, I think is a complete waste of time and resources. We should design organizations that are equitable and inclusive, whether or not every single person inside those orgs is inclined the same way. What is your ideal version of what this programming could look like? We've talked about kind of the straw man bad ones that I brought up because I'm angry and bitter, but I'm curious as to what the ideal looks like to you. So there's principles that could be applied across different programs, but there's not really like one thing that I could say would be ideal. Whatever industry, organization, problem you're trying to deal with, those are going to all have like unique initiatives that would work the best in those spaces. One of the principles that I think is really important is what we've been talking about this entire conversation, which is having this multifaceted approach where you have a bunch of interventions at the individual level focused at people who have been marginalized. You have some focused on people who have traditionally held power. At the same time, you're working at the group level, right? Improving networks, resources to create community. And then at the organizational level, you're changing structures. All of those need to be happening at the same time. The other thing that I think is really important is having more of a growth mindset on this stuff. One of the things that turns people off of DEI work is that they think that they have to be perfect, right? If one slip up, they're all of a sudden a racist. We know being called a racist is worse than like 
actually doing racist stuff. And so I think everyone needs to think about this as a skill that you can build and work on like any other skill. It's not the case that you're going to be perfect. You're always going to make mistakes. We have to give room for people to make mistakes and then improve. Yeah, I was just going to say for my listeners' benefit that actually racism is worse than being called a racist. (laughs) A lot of people don't know that. But yeah, I think that that really gets to the work that both of you do, the idea of performativity. And I think that there's a performance of anti-racism that gets a lot of attention. Lily, is there a world, an ideal world, someday, maybe, who knows, where your job doesn't exist? No. So I think (laughs) uh, DEI work in some form will always be necessary. And to qualify that comment, I think it's crucial that we understand what we mean when we say DEI work. Mm -hmm. If you're only talking about like remedial education as to like, what is race? Yeah, I want to get rid of that. Um, I don't think we need that. But when you're talking about deep structural change, organizational design, organizational culture, ensuring that the work we do, the products we make, the structures we design, the policies we make are equitable and inclusive, I think that work should always be around. I think the sooner we can shift DEI work from a space of remedial, individual, micro-level education into a more structural, sustainable space where DEI is more about ensuring that organizations can stay accountable to all the communities they care about, I think that's the DEI work that I want to see into the future, where DEI professionals have that background and training where we're able to sustain these outcomes for everyone at scale. Sonia, what do you think? I don't really see a future in which it's not necessary. I think as long as there are humans and different kinds of humans, then this work will need to be done. You have to have these conversations, right? It's okay for those biases to be there, but it's not okay for people to act on them and attach attitudes and stereotypes and all these different things to them. So I think that not having the conversation in the long term is probably going to be more harmful than, you know, having it and keeping it going. Well, the fact that both of you are doing the work that you do and how you do it is actually making me feel less negative about DEI work. Um, So congratulations. Where's your cynicism meter right now? (laughs) Zero to 10, where 10 is maximum cynical. Well, let's see. Earlier today, I was around an eight. But then we had this conversation and I'm at like a four, (laughs) which I think a four on the cynicism meter is like, wow. That's a lot. That's a pretty solid outing. So I would call that a net win. Yeah. See, see, another success story. That's huge. Yeah. That's a big effect. Dr. Sonia King and Lily Zing, thank you both so much for having this conversation with me. Thanks for inviting me. And thanks, Lily. It was a good combo. Yeah. Thanks for having us both. Dr. Sonia Kang is an Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior and Human Resource Management and the Canada Research Chair in Identity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Toronto. She also hosts the podcast For the Love of Work. Lily Zhang is a Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Strategy Consultant and Public Speaker. They're also the author of the forthcoming book, DEI Deconstructed, Doing the Work and Doing It Right. If you want to learn more about the state of DEI in the workplace, I recommend Dr. Kang's podcast, For the Love of Work, specifically the episode entitled Leaning Into Diversity, Equity, and Belonging. I also recommend reading Kim Tran in Harper's Bazaar, The Diversity and Inclusion Industry Has Lost Its Way. 
One cited study that people often use to criticize DEI is by Dobbin and Califf, Why Diversity Programs Fail. And from the Washington Post in 2016, to improve diversity, don't make people go to diversity training. Really. You can find links to all of these in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Vishaka Durba. Edited by Sarah Geis and Alison Brujek. With original music by Isaac Jones and mixing by Eric Gomez. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Special thanks to Kristen Lynn. I think now I'm recognizing I'm like, oh, maybe I've just dealt with like really shitty DEI practitioners. Yeah, that's a thing. I mean, that's real. Yeah. There's a lot of them. Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.